0: The Lord in prayer, and then uh, we'll continue our study of the 1689 confession. I better have my copy of the confession. (laughs)
1: All
0: right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful yet again to be gathered together as the people of God to worship you through singing and to hear your word, to gaze at your glory, to fellowship with the saints, to equip one another for the work of the ministry. And together to pursue Christ's likeness. What a joy it is to be gathered with the church, uh, Lord. We're thankful for all that you do for us, all the ways that you graciously provide for us. Uh, we're thankful to have uh, some of our uh, some of our friends back today, Lord. To have a John back, Sandra back with us, and uh, just so thankful for their family and uh, what a blessing they've been to us. And we're just grateful for. How you continue to add to our church and, and build relationships within our church and we just want to continue to go deep together in the word of God that we might more reflect the glory of the Savior so be with us now give us grace and wisdom to know the truth for your glory we pray amen all right <clears throat> if you do not have a copy of the confession you can find one at the very front there on that uh, long glass uh, at our what is that thing a long glass cabinet or whatever it is all right we're going to be on page. 14, page 14, and we're still on chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity, God and the Holy Trinity. We've uh, talked about the Scripture, we considered uh, some of the glorious truths of Scripture, now we've come to the topic of God. Uh, We start with Scripture because everything we believe about God is found in the Scripture, so we have to start by establishing its validity and veracity and truthfulness. But now having done that, we consider what the Scripture has to say about God. And this uh, chapter outlines itself real nicely. There's three paragraphs. Each paragraph uh, contains some truths about God. Paragraph 1 deals with the attributes of God. Paragraph 2 deals with the relations of God. And paragraph 3 deals with the triunity of God. The attributes of God, the relations of God, and the triunity of God. Uh, We're going very slowly, obviously, through the Confession. Hopefully we can speed up one day. But... uh, we're still on paragraph 1, and I'm going to try to just work through the rest of this very quickly so we can move on to paragraph 2. So, a God of the Holy Trinity, we considered some of God's attributes last week. We talked about God's singularity or exclusivity, that there is only one God. We talked about His self-existence, or His, uh, what we could call the aseity of God, that God does not depend on anyone else for His existence or His being. He has all being in and of Himself. Uh, we talked about His incomprehensibility. Uh, We can know God, but we can't fully know God, comprehensively know God, because the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Uh, We talked about His spirituality. Uh, That is to say, God is a spirit. God is not a material being with uh, body parts and physical or or, uh, changeable human emotions. God is an immaterial, perfect being. We talked about the immutability of God. Uh, That means that God never changes. Uh, God is not going to uh, make a promise in, you know, A.D. 30 and His promises then are faithful and then somehow 2,000 years later God's faithfulness changes. He's now unfaithful and evil, so we can't trust His promises. God never changes. He's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Then we're moving now into number six here and we're talking about God's immensity or His omnipresence. Let me read uh, paragraph one for you and then we'll pick up where we left off. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, and comprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite. Absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. So we're going to pick up uh, right after footnote 5, I believe. Right after footnote 5 there. Right after it says he's unchangeable. It then adds that he is immense. God is immense. The immensity of God. What does it mean that God is immense? Does anyone know? We don't use words like that ordinarily right, in our conversation. That's because none of us are... Immense. (laughs) So what does it mean? Does anyone have an idea? I didn't either until I looked (laughs) at... God is huge. That's the common modern vernacular. It's a good way to put it. God is huge. So basically it means He's not bound by space. God transcends time and space. God is not only omnipresent, not only does He exist everywhere in the universe at the same time, but He even transcends the universe so that He exists outside of it. And this has to be the case, because who created the universe? God. God. If He created the universe, He had to exist outside of it, because He pre-existed it. So God not only exists everywhere in the universe, but even outside of the universe. There are several passages that uh, speak about that. I don't have to, we're not going to look at them uh, really in detail, but basically Scripture says over and over again that you know he, the highest heaven cannot contain Him. Nothing can contain God. God dwells outside space and time. And I think all of God's attributes, by the way, have a practical implication. Um, what what are some practical implications of God's omnipresence? If God is everywhere, what does that mean for people like us? What would it mean for an unbeliever who's living in sin? There's no hiding. No hiding from God, right? He's everywhere, He sees you everywhere you go. What does it mean for believers? Is it a comfort for believers? Yeah, because... What you say, John? I'd say so, yeah. Absolutely. Why? Why is it comforting that we know God is everywhere? It's nice to know that He guides you in your life. He's always with you. Amen. So, God is with John in Oklahoma. He'll be with John in Texas. He's with Sandra in Rochester. And He's with us today, right? And He's with us when we go home. He's with us in our suffering. He's with us in our good times. God is always with His people, right? And He can be that because He's immense. All right, now, uh, some more attributes to consider the eternality of God. Again, right after footnote 5, He's unchangeable, immense, eternal. Eternal, that's a pretty simple one, right? Uh, Not only does God exist outside of space, but He exists outside of time. He's existed forever. Uh, Psalm 90, verse 2, written by Moses. Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before you even brought the mountains forth, you are God. God has existed from all of eternity. Uh, Then the next one we can consider is the omnipotence of God. Uh, After saying eternal, he adds incomprehensible, we've talked about that, but then almighty, almighty, God's almighty, God's all-powerful, God can do all things. Then he speaks of the holiness of God, he says uh, almighty in every way infinite, absolutely holy, absolutely holy. God is holy, we've talked about that word before, no need to rehash all of that, it's set apart, God is set apart from sin, set apart to righteousness, he always does what is good. And then, after holiness, we see sovereignty. This is kind of where I want to camp out just for a minute. It says, uh, right after footnote 9 there, you see the little 9, just to kind of help you catch up, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise. Now watch this, holy free, completely absolute. So God is holy free. In, In one sense, there's really only one being in the universe who has complete free will. Who's that? God God can do anything He wants. I can't fly off this building, no matter how strong my will is to do so, because I'm bound by my nature, I'm bound by my creaturehood, I'm bound by God's sovereignty and providence. But God can do whatever He wants within, obviously, His own nature. God is the ultimate free being. So God is wholly free and completely absolute, He works all things according to the counsel of His own unchangeable and completely righteous will for His own glory. That is a loaded statement right there. God works all things, not some things, but all things to complete and fulfill His perfectly righteous will and glory. So when we talk about the will of God, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in a long time, when we talk about the will of God, there really are two aspects that theologians identify of the will of God. There is God's will of decree, and then there's God's perceptive will, his moral will. Okay? So, in one sense, God decrees everything. In that sense, everything that happens is happening according to God's will. Right? Let's let's take the cross. Was it evil when the Romans and the Jews killed Jesus? Was that evil? Yes, but the Bible says that was according to God's predetermined plan. God determined that, God decreed that. So In one sense, everything that happens is according to God's will. But in another sense, everything that happens isn't according to God's will. For instance, is it God's will for you to lie? No, right? If you lie, God decreed that. God decreed that in time He would permit you to say that lie. But it's not consistent with God's perceptive, His moral will. So is it God's will uh, for the Romans and the Jews to kill Jesus? Yes and no. Yes, it's according to His decretive will. No, not according to His perceptive and moral will. And so when we talk about God's decretive will, that's what the Scripture is talking about here, that everything that happens in the universe is according to God's will. Let me take you to a passage that uh, I think states this pretty clearly. Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46. And here in Isaiah, we find a powerful statement in affirmation of God's sovereignty. And when we get there, I want to read verses 9 through 11. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. The Lord says through Isaiah, Remember the former things long past... For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. So here the passage says that God declares the end from the beginning. And that's not talking about prediction, because the passage in the context is talking about God's purpose being established. It's talking about, uh, verse 11 says, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. This is God's decretive will. God plans the very end from the beginning. And in the context, it's God raising up a king to be an instrument of judgment upon Israel. God is sovereign over that. God decreed that. God it's not like it was an accident that these pagan rulers came to reign and, and ruled over Israel. Um, you know, it wasn't an accident that, that uh, these, these pagan rulers destroyed Israel, took them captive. The Babylonian captivity was not an accident. All of that was sovereignly decreed by God from the beginning, from eternity past. And the same is true with every trial that you endure as a Christian. Every time you suffer as a Christian, God decreed that from the beginning, and it's for your good. So that's a comfort for us, right? God's sovereignty is a comfort to God's people because we know that He means it for good. Uh, Another passage, we won't turn there, but it's Proverbs 16.4. Proverbs 16.4 says that everything is made for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. So that everything, even the wicked's condemnation is made and decreed and declared by God for His glory. And we'll talk more about that in chapter 3 when we come to God's decree. So that's the sovereignty of God. And then there's one more that's... Really, the 11th one is is several attributes considered together because the confession just jams them together here. Uh, We see the love, mercy, grace, goodness, and justice of God. Uh, Look after footnote 12. After footnote 12. He is most loving... Gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Uh, there are several passages that are alluded to there. Uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is one of them. Let's go to Exodus 34 for a minute. Exodus 34. This is a wonderful chapter as God reveals His glory to Moses. We're probably familiar with that phrase uttered by Moses, God show me your glory. And when Moses asked to see the glory of God, what does God show him? Does anyone know? Anyone familiar with that story? Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God puts him in in the cleft of a rock and tells him that he can see his back, right? But then as he's passing by, God begins to declare some of his attributes, okay? So when we talk about the glory of God, again, theologians have identified two elements or two aspects of that glory. There is the glory of God that we call his intrinsic glory, his intrinsic glory. That's the glory of God that is true of God in and of himself, okay? That's the perfection of His nature. All of God's attributes together make up His glory. So the glory of God is who He is, His perfection. But then when we talk about God's glory, we could also be talking about His ascribed glory. That's the glory we give to God. That's praise, okay? In the context in Exodus 34, it's talking about His intrinsic glory. So Moses wants to see who God is, and so as God comes by him, he tells him who He is. Exodus 34, look at verse... Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in lovingkindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." And then notice Moses' response. Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. That's a good response, isn't it? We see God's glory even now in this text. God is telling us who he is, God is revealing his glory to us in the scripture. And just like Moses, we should respond in worship. Worship. So, God is a loving God, He's a kind God, He's a gracious God but He's also a righteous and just God who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, Other passages to consider would be Psalm 5.5 that says God hates the worker of iniquity. Psalm 7.11 says God is angry with the wicked every day. Uh, Hebrews 11 says He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So this is kind of the two sides of God, right? Uh, Paul says in Romans 11, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. God is kind to His people, but has severe judgment toward those who are outside of Christ. So these are the attributes of God. Any questions, comments, statements on the attributes of God? Any practical thoughts on all of this? What are, how should the attributes of God affect the way we live our lives? Or let me ask you this. Do the attributes of God affect the way we live our lives? Or is this just all theoretical head knowledge? What are some examples of how who God is impacts the way we live our life? You can do it.
1: All seeing, meaning since He knows everything, He sees
0: everything. Which Yeah, so we should live every day of our life knowing that the eye of God is upon us, right? Here, compose yourself that's a... Godly person every day. Amen. Amen. Right? Because you're always in the vision of God. Amen. How about the way we evangelize? Do the attributes of God have any impact on the way we share the gospel with other people? Yeah, right? You can't. No one can really understand the gospel until they know who God is, right? Until they understand that God is their creator, their lawgiver, their judge. He's a loving, merciful creator. He's given Him life and breath and all things. And they've hated Him and rejected Him and broken His law and His justice is severe. His wrath is an everlasting, infinite punishment upon the wicked. And until they understand that, they're never going to see the glory of the cross, right? So the attributes of God are very practical for us. All right, let's go to paragraph 2 now. We are going to begin to consider the relations of God. And what I mean by that is how God relates to us as His creatures. Let me read the paragraph and then we'll make some observations. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of Himself. He alone is all sufficient in Himself. He does not need any creature He has made, nor does He derive any glory from them. Instead, He demonstrates His own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from Him, through Him, and to Him. He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them or for them or upon them as He pleases. In His sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It does not depend upon any creature, so for Him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. He is absolutely holy in all His plans and all His works and in all His commands. Angels and human beings owe to Him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the Creator, and whatever else he is pleased to require of them. Um, what are some thoughts that come to your mind as we read through that paragraph about God? Anything you think about? Well, it, it's a big point is God is in everything. <laughs> you know, everyone. And uh, we are supposed to project his glory. Amen. Right? So if you look at nature, that's, that's his glory. That's glory. The heavens declare His glory. Amen. Amen. So God's in everything. His glory is revealed everywhere. We're to, we're to observe that, aren't we? We should be conscious of that. When you're driving to work in the snow, you should look and say, not say, man, that dirty, stinking snow is getting on my nerves. We should look and say, that's the glory of God. He made glory that. Right? Is snow. Amen. Yeah. amen. Yeah. And I'm starting to learn that. As I <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to look back down to the sun?
1: No, I'm fine.
0: I'm fine right here. So let me make a few statements that I think the Confession implicitly makes here. First of all, God does not need us. God does not need us. That's pretty obvious, right? Look at the first line of the paragraph. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of Himself. Right? We don't contribute anything to God. We, it's not like God's day is dependent upon us. You know, how I live today is not going to make God happy or not so happy. When we talk about God being, again, I said this last time, when we talk about God's wrath being on us or God being pleased with us, we don't mean that God's up there saying, man, I'm having a horrible day now because all these creatures are being so mean to me. Now, it's over. I'm ruined. I'm going to cry all day. No, God is perfect in and of Himself. He doesn't need us. When we're talking about God's displeasure or pleasure, we're saying how God acts toward us based upon how we're living. We're not talking about how God feels in Himself, right? God doesn't. Need, we don't add life to God. We don't add glory to God. We don't add anything to His attributes, anything to His goodness. Uh, God doesn't need us. The second line there says, He alone is all sufficient in Himself. And then it adds, He does not need any creature He has made, nor does He derive any glory from them. So this goes back to the difference between God's intrinsic glory and God's ascribed glory. We do give... Praise to God, but we don't add anything to the perfections of God. God is who He is in and of Himself and needs nothing from us. So, that that brings us to a question. If God doesn't need us, why did God create us? If God doesn't need us, why did He create us?
1: To serve Him and glorify Him.
0: To glorify Him. Not that He needed the glory, right? But He is pleased to receive glory. It, It brings honor to Him. He wants to display His glory. He would have been perfectly fine from all of eternity in and of himself, but it was the will of God to display His glory and to do so in such a way that people get to share in that glory. That's the goodwill, pleasure, and mercy of God. So God makes us to display His glory to us. That's what the confession says. It says He doesn't need any creature He's made. This is the third line here. He has made, nor does He derive any glory from them. Instead, He demonstrates His own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. So He doesn't get glory from us in that sense, but He displays that glory to us, and that's the reason He made us. And this is a a theocentric or a God-centered perspective on the Bible and the world and life. One theologian said, The world is the theater of God. The world was made to display God's glory. We're secondary to the story. The Gospel is not ultimately about us. The Bible is not ultimately about us. The creation of the universe is not ultimately about us. It's about the majesty and the glory and the honor of God. But in His grace, we get to share in that. But it's ultimately about God. Does that sound like most uh, modern Christian views today? Most mainstream preachers today on television and radio? No, right? It's all about how you can have your best life and... You can have money. But see, the problem is when we gear our ministry and our preaching and our teaching and our service toward people, we don't even have anything to offer them but false hope and false security. If if what you're hearing is that every day's a Friday, you're going to go out and realize every day's a Monday, right? It stinks. You know, my car breaks down, my tires go flat, you know, my family members are sick and they're dying. I'm getting sick. It's, It's what happens. But if you're hearing the truth that in the midst of your suffering because of who God is, you can have joy. Because of who God is, you can have contentment. Then that offers you real hope. It's not about me. It's about God. When you hear that your ultimate hope is not to to be delivered from some trial now, but to be delivered from hell and judgment to come in Christ because of God's grace and mercy and for His glory, then we have real hope. It's all about God. And so a God-centered approach is the biblical approach, the only legitimate approach and the only approach that's going to bring true and lasting joy and contentment to the people of God. So God demonstrates his glory to them. This is uh, one, two, three, four, about five lines down. the next sentence says, he alone is the source of all being and everything is from him through him and to him. So now what we could say is not only not only do does God not need us but number two we need him. we need him. He is the source of all being and everything is from Him, through Him, and to Him. Without Him, there would be no us, right? Sometimes people say, where's the evidence for God's existence? Your evidence for God's your whole being, your whole life, the, your whole existence, screams for the God that you know, because He's the source of all being. So we need God. Now, a third statement we can make is that uh, not only do we need God, but also thirdly... God rules over us. God rules over us. He has absolute sovereign rule over all his creatures to act through them, for them, or upon them as he pleases. So God rules over us, he's the king over us. All of our the affairs of our life are in his hands. The scripture says often that our times are in his hands. He's appointed the times of our habitation and our and our existences. Uh, we live and move and have our being in God. All of our existence is in the sovereign hands. Of God. Another thing we could say here from the confession is that uh, not only do we need God, and not only does God rule over us, but God sees everything about us, and that's obvious. We talked about that. But He goes on and says, goes on and says, uh, in, in His sight everything is open, invisible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible, and it does not depend upon any creature. So for Him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. Basically, what that's saying is God knows everything, and He doesn't know everything because you and I told Him everything. He knows everything because He's God. He decreed it all. He knows it all. He's omniscient. He knows everything because of who He is. And then uh, you could add that not only does He know everything, but He's absolutely holy before us. This is uh, right after, right before footnote twenty. After right after footnote twenty-four says He is absolutely holy in all His plans, in all His works, in all His commands. That means that anything God tells us to do, we can trust that it's good, right? Anything. It's often easy for us to think about God's law as kind of a, a rain on our parade, right? We think, man, you know, why can't I go out and get drunk with my friends? You know, why can't I, why can't I have this adulterous affair? What, what's wrong with that? I mean, it's not really going to hurt anybody, you know, in the long run, right? But think about it. The toddler thinks the same thing. The two-year-old runs up to the stove and says, Man, that red, that red uh, oven thing, whatever they, you call them these days, that looks hot. I mean, or that, that, that doesn't look hot. That looks cool. I want to touch it. So he reaches out his hand to touch it, and then his mom says no. smacks his hand. don't do that sign, it's hot. To the baby, he doesn't understand. I mean, what do you, It looks cool, Mom. You're just raining on my parade. But the mom has a knowledge that the baby doesn't have. The mom knows what's best for the baby. So it is for God. As sinners, we don't know everything, right? Even though we think we do. We don't know everything, and we might think that getting drunk with our friends is okay, but then every year, people who are drunk with their friends kill people in drunk driving accidents. Uh, We think the adulterous affair is okay, and then you end up with single mothers, and sexually transmitted diseases, and so forth. God knows what's best, so we can trust all of His commandments, all of His promises, all of His laws, because He's absolutely holy in the way He deals with us as His creatures. And then, uh, finally, a statement we can make is that we owe God. We owe God. God, look at the last sentence, uh, the third line before the end there. Angels and human beings owe to Him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the Creator and whatever else He is pleased to require of them. Because of who God is, we should worship Him. Because of who God is, we should praise Him. Because of who God is, we should thank Him. Because of who God is, we owe the whole of our lives and our existences to Him. So we owe God. So God doesn't need us. We need God. God knows everything about us. God rules over us. God is holy before us, and we owe Him. We owe Him. That's God in relation to His creatures. Any thoughts, comments, or questions on all that we've talk, talked about so far? You guys have got it right. I mean... This isn't a hard subject. This isn't an infinite subject, is it?
1: You've
0: got to see us in discipleship trying to get through the attributes of God. It takes like four weeks, and we just scratch the surface. All right, now paragraph three, we're not going to get through this whole thing today, but uh, we're going to start to consider the triunity of God. So the confession begins with the attributes of God in general. Uh, then it moves on to how God relates to creatures. But then it moves on to the triunity of God in particular to speak about Uh, the fact that God exists not as one person, but as we know as three. Let's read paragraph three. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are in infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. And uh, We'll look at some of those specific statements probably next week. But basically, what I want to do is uh, for us to understand the Trinity is I want to walk you through some of the foundational truths that make up the Trinity. And then I want to point out three heretical understandings of God that I think gives us a clearer understanding of what the Trinity is. And here's why I want to do that. It's, It's difficult to describe the Trinity in a positive way. It's actually easier to describe the Trinity by saying what it's not. Because, you know, often we give illustrations of the Trinity, and here's one that I find most helpful, but it's not perfect. The tri- a triangle, okay? You have a triangle. You have one triangle, but three corners, okay? Uh, the triangle's three and yet one. And it's three in one way, but one in a different way. But if you compare the persons of the Trinity to the corners on the triangle, you end up with an in, you know, an, 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 not an infallible analogy. Because in this case, each corner of the triangle doesn't possess the full fullness of the triangle, right? But the three persons of the Trinity each share the fullness of the divine nature and being. I don't have an illustration for that. If you do, share it with me. I'd be glad to hear it. But I don't have one. So, the best way, I think, to understand the Trinity, after stating some positive affirmations about the Trinity, is to say what the Trinity is not. Okay? So let's start with this. Let's start with an objection. The Trinity... Go ahead.
1: I think of the Trinity kind of like, I'm one person. But I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a friend. That kind of thing. And it's still
0: right. all of me. Right. So in that's, that case... That's
1: not adequate.
0: Right. So now I mean, that, I mean, that, I mean, that, that does help. That kind of has some strengths that the other analogy doesn't, but then has weaknesses that the other analogy doesn't. Right. So in this case, it's the whole of you that's these things. Right? Yeah. So that kind of gets the wholeness of it. I'm not
1: daughter to Chloe.
0: Right. You know, and in this case, you you're one person. like
1: a daughter to Chloe.
0: Right. But in this case, you're one person, right? So, of course, i right. God, is the Trinity. So the, all of these analogies have some strengths and weaknesses. Um, so we, we, we can share some of these just to try and highlight several truths about the Trinity, but then I think we refute the errors about the Trinity, and at least you can come away saying, okay, that's not what the Trinity is. And I think that's helpful, okay? So let's start with this. Some skeptics of the Trinity say you're a pagan, you believe in a three-headed monster god. Uh, that's from Catholicism, it's not from the Bible. In fact, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. So how do you believe in the Trinity if the word Trinity is not in the Bible? How can we respond to that? The word Trinity is not in the Bible, therefore it's not biblical.
1: Well, it gives evidence of the Trinity with John, Jesus being baptized, right? the spirit, the voice from heaven, and then Jesus got that. That's right. So it doesn't say
0: exactly that there is, but you see evidence by Jesus' word. So what Ian is saying is, is they're guilty of a fallacy. It's the word concept fallacy. Just because a word isn't there, doesn't mean a concept's not there. Okay. An example would be in Second Samuel seven. Uh, we what we call the Davidic covenant. God makes a promise with David. The word covenant's not there. It's used later in Scripture. But just because the word covenant's not in second Samuel 7 doesn't mean a covenant's not being established, right? The word concept fallacy. And just because the word trinity's not in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach the concept of the trinity. Okay.
1: Besides that, trinity, I believe is Latin. Right. And the New Testament was written in Greek. That's Old a good point. Testament one. written in Hebrew, of course, the Torah was.
0: Very good. Very good point. Yes. So we have to take into account the languages, don't we? Very good. So
1: get, we get the words from the Bible, meaning we got Trinity from the attributes of God, meaning when he came down and he got baptized. We saw three people, Trinity means three, so that's where we get Trinity, instead of just making up a word, oh, today I think to be Trinity, we right. get it from the Bible, the reference
0: is right, right. right it's a descriptive word that describes what we read about God in the Bible Right, the word tri you know if you drive you ride a tricycle how many wheels does it have
1: three,
0: three. Yes. the word tri means three unity means we're all one right so if you have a tri-unity you have something that's three and one you have three persons one God so let me state three foundational truths and then quickly mention the three heretical notions concerning the nature of God and then we'll look at all that in detail next week so, first of all, the three truths. Number one, I think I've told you this before, there is only one God who is one in being. There's one God who is one being. Okay. If the Bible teaches that, that's step one to proving the truth. Does the Bible teach there's only one God? Yeah, the Bible teaches that. Step two, the Bible teaches there are three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not only are these three persons, but they're distinct from one another. And we'll look next week at why that's the case. And then thirdly... <coughs> Though the Bible teaches there's one God and three persons, it teaches these three persons are all the one God. If you have that, you have the Trinity. If we can show you that there's one God in the Bible, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same persons, but that they're all the one God, it's over. The Trinity is the biblical doctrine concerning the nature of God. Now quickly, the three errors concerning the nature of God that uh, deny the true biblical doctrine of the Trinity uh, are as follows. So you have what we could call Arianism. Arianism, that's what we find in the modern day Jehovah's Witnesses. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, following after Arius from the 3rd or 4th century, uh, teaches that Jesus is not God. Jesus is just a God. Just a God. He was the first creature of the Father. And so what the the Arians are doing is they're denying uh, point number one, that there's only one God who's one being, and they're denying point number three, that these three persons all are the one God. To the, the Arians, the Father and Son are two distinct gods. The Father is God Almighty. The Son is a mighty God, but not God Almighty. He's not Jehovah. He's Jehovah's first creature. Okay, that's obviously not the Trinity. It's not the biblical teaching concerning the nature of God. A second erroneous perspective is what we could call modalism. Modalism. Modalism is found in the modern-day One is Pentecostals. They go by Jesus' name only. Other names they go by Apostolic and so forth. So here's what the modalist teaches. The modalist teaches that God is one person. He's one person, and His name is Jesus, and Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These aren't three persons. They're just three different manifestations or three different roles that God plays. So in the Old Testament, God is Father. Uh, in the Gospels, God is Son. And then in the book of Acts, God is the Holy Spirit. But it's just all one person. But uh, as Ian mentioned, with the baptism of Jesus, they have a problem there, right? Because you got God and all three of His persons at one time and if he's doing that as just different manifestations, he's pretty quick in how he's putting on his different mask. right? So that's clearly not a biblical perspective on the nature of God. Uh, and so for them, here's a statement that you, you shouldn't make as a Christian. Sometimes we make this, but and it's not because we're heretical. It's because we're not thinking deeply about the doctrine of the Trinity. Have you ever said this, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. You ever thought that way? That's not exactly accurate. The God the Father did not die on the cross for our sins. God the Son did, Jesus Christ, right? Or have you ever said, Jesus, thank you for sending your Son. You ever prayed that? Some people do, I've heard it. Again, I think it's because they don't fully understand the Trinity. Jesus did not send His Son. Jesus is the Son whom the Father sent into the world, right? So that would be more like modalism, which if you really embrace that wholeheartedly, that's heretical. Most Christians just don't understand. They, believe, they say they believe in the Trinity. They don't understand the Trinity. But I don't fully understand it either. But it is important that we at least understand what it's not. Okay, So modalism is another error. A third error is what we could call tritheism. Tritheism. Uh, that's the error we see in Mormonism. The Mormons believe that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all three distinct gods. Now... You're going to have to press them to get them to say this, but they will if you do it, if you, if you make them be technical in their language and really precise. But So the Mormons, if you ask them general questions, do you believe in the Trinity? Yeah, I believe in the Trinity. You believe there's one God? Yeah. You believe that uh, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God? Yeah, yeah, they're one, they're God. But then if you ask them specifically, who created Jesus Christ? You know what they're going to say? Oh, God the Father did. I've asked several Mormons that, and that's the answer they always get. Then you can even ask them this question, who created God the Father? And you know what their answer is going to be if they're a smart Mormon and they really know their theology? Some other God. That's what they believe. So God the Father, according to Joseph Smith, used to be a man who lived on another planet, followed that God's rules very well, was exalted to Godhood, became a God, got his own planet, him and his goddess wife, through relationship, had many children, Jesus being one of them, the Holy Spirit and all of us. And now, by the way, this is a good religion for men because the men can follow Mormonism very well, become gods of their planets, have all their children as well, and set their own rules and their own laws. So that's a very mo- big motivation for Mormon men. right? I'm going to go be a missionary and do whatever I can to be a god. But that is obviously not biblical. Okay, That's the lie in the garden. You can become like God just all over again. So, they believe that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three separate beings that constitute three separate gods. That's tritheism. That's not Trinitarianism. It is a damnable heresy, a false god that we must reject. Okay. So, what is the Trinity? One god, three persons that all make up that one god. What the Trinity is not, it's not Arianism. Jesus is not a created god. It's not modalism. God's not one person in three roles. And it's not uh, tritheism. God's not three separate gods, three separate beings. Okay. So, any thoughts, comments, or questions on that? Next week we will look at some of the statements of the confession and uh, look up some scriptures that uh, refute these other ideas and affirm the Trinity. Okay. All right, we're getting close to being done with chapter two, almost, mm-hmm. almost. Let's uh, close in prayer and uh, take a break and get ready to worship. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the Scripture. Thank you for faithful men throughout history who have crafted and put together confessions and creeds and statements of faith that help us to understand theologically what the scripture teaches and uh, stimulate thought on what the Bible teaches theologically. It gets us into the Word of God and helps us to think clearly about these truths and realities. Uh, We're thankful. We're thankful, Lord, that throughout history you have worked in such a miraculous way that uh, you've preserved the truth. We can look in history and as we watch doctrines develop, we can see their truths, but we can also see the opposing errors that are set up against them that uh, just resurface today. Arianism exists today. It goes by a different name. It's Jehovah's Witnesses, Watchtower Society. Um, modalism goes by a different name. It's the Oneness Pentecostals, Jesus' name only. It's just an old error masking itself as new truth. And Father, I pray you would give us grace to uh, discern that, to, to perceive that. And to hold fast to the truth of your word for your glory. And to that end we pray. Amen.